Hi, this is Sarah Peretsky, and you're listening to Writer Types. Hi there, this is Ian Rankin. I'm Laurie Rader Day. This is Matthew Quirk. I'm Don Winslow. This is Rachel Housel Hall. This is Meg Gardner. That is such a great question. Well, that's an interesting question. <laughs> that's a great question. I'm Alifair Burke, and this is Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and joining me this week as my special guest co-host is Erica Ruth Neubauer, author of the debut novel Murder at the Mina House. Welcome, Erica. Thank you for having me. So are you starting to get used to that? The the author of? Is that still a new and exciting thing for you? Uh, no, it's still super weird. Not going to lie. And seeing my face places is really, really, really weird. <laughs> Do you not have any mirrors in your house? <laughs> Not that way, but like the the local newspaper ran a thing and they ran my author photo and I was just like, what is happening? <laughs> yeah, it's really strange. Now, this book was recommended on Writer Types in a previous episode. It's a traditional mystery, a period piece. It's an yeah. international story, a bit of romance in there. You got it all. Yes, yes. It's totally escapist, which I, I think is kind of what people are looking for right now. Yeah, it escaped to Cairo in the 20s. Yeah. So why Cairo in the 20s? Um, my dad raised me on all those, you know, those old black and white movies and the old Agatha Christie and Masterpiece Mystery. Um, and somewhere along the way, I picked up really romantic ideas about 1920s Egypt. And so I really just wanted to set something there in the like in the Agatha Christie style where it's like kind of a not quite a locked room, but all the, you know, all the guests at the hotel are suspects. And so it was definitely a love letter to those those movies in my youth. Well, Jane is described as fiercely independent. Uh, some might say plucky. <laughs> yes. If we had to describe you on the back of a book jacket, how do you think you would describe yourself? I think I would mostly say quirky, <laughs> which yeah. is probably a polite way of saying mildly awkward. Um, <laughs> a little weird. Yeah, I, I would believe that. I, I, I can I can endorse quirky. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Well, okay, we can't shy away from it. There, there's no way to deny it. You are releasing a book in the middle of a global pandemic. Sure is. Sure is. <laughs> kind of uh, cuts into the old book tour, huh? Yeah, that has been definitely postponed. Maybe this fall I can scoot around the country and say hey to people. And then we'll all get to see your face. <laughs> exactly. So uh, we've safely said your new series is for fans of Agatha Christie. Is there anyone else you could add to that? Uh, if you like this author, you'll like this list. I mean, I, I see maybe like a Katrina McPherson, maybe oh, yeah. Solari Gentile, that kind of vibe. Yeah, right? also like a little bit of Elizabeth Peters, maybe. Um, although there's no actual archaeology really in this. And... Wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait. Yeah. <laughs> you set a book <laughs> in Egypt around the time they uncovered King Tut's tomb and there's no archaeology in it? I mean, there is some. It's sort of it's sort of a B-plot. She's not doing any archaeology. And also, the rest of the books in the series move to different places. Well, all right. Speaking of other writers, have you read anything yeah. good lately? Oh, my goodness. Yes, always. What? I really loved Elizabeth Little's Pretty as a Picture. She nails voice, man. Her first book, too, Dear Daughter, was just excellent. Um, but I really loved Pretty as a Picture. And then um, Laurie Rader Day's um, The Lucky One also really loved it. Oh, these are all friends of writer types you're mentioning. (laughs) Might be a little biased. (laughs) Frequent guests of the show. I love it. All right. Well, let's talk to our first guest, shall we? Awesome. Let's do it. 
Jason Pinter is a best-selling author whose new series starring Rachel Marin begins with his new novel, Hideaway. Rachel is hiding from her past to keep her children safe. She also happens to be a heck of a vigilante. Now, Erica, you yourself are an unassuming woman in person, quirky, as we've decided, (laughs) but you spent more than a decade in the military. So if you needed to, you could kill me with just your thumb, right? (laughs) would never tell you that. <laughs> I'd never see it coming is what you're saying. Exactly. I'm not going to give away my secret. <laughs> no, I don't think it's a secret that most people could kill me with their thumb. <laughs> Jason Pinter, welcome to Writer Types. Now, Hideaway is the first Rachel Marin book. And as I understand it, this was partly inspired by your own long journey to becoming a parent, right? It, it was. Uh, it, it certainly it makes my journey to being a father sound much more dramatic than it probably was as most <laughs> the, the majority of the work is done by the mother. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it really was uh, in the sense that um, w- when our young, our oldest daughter was about six months old, um, she was perfectly healthy. And uh, there was one night where my wife and I were lying in bed and we have a monitor on the nightstand so we can see her. And I could generally sleep through the night pretty easily, but my wife would stay up and watch the monitor all night. Uh, At one point, I stupidly said to her, I said, you know, she's happy, she's healthy, why don't you get some sleep? And she said, you'll never understand what it's like to grow something inside of you and then have it live outside of you and not know what's happening any second of the day. And that really struck a chord in me. And at the time, I was looking to start a new book, start a new series, and the idea of a mother as this sort of just a protector, somebody who... Uh, would do anything to protect their child, but sort of to wrap that into a, a crime or thriller novel, it just, it just completely clicked for me. And I don't think it's the kind of book that I could have written before becoming a parent. Yeah, I mean, the thing we deal with as fathers is that often we're thought of more as the protectors, but I, I agree with you, Jason. I think mothers are more instinctually protective. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a bond between a mother and their child that a father just could never understand just because we're not the ones carrying it and, and birthing it. Um, and in this book, you know, there uh, something terrible happens to Rachel Marin's husband. So she is the sole protector. But it's not just that she's lost her husband. She's lost her husband in one of the most horrifying ways imaginable. So not only is she a protector in the sense that she's a mother, but she's been let down by the system, by a lot of people. So she essentially has to, feels like she has to protect her children from the entire world. And the toll that takes on her emotionally and physically it it changes her you know it's night night and day night and day one of the inspirations for the character actually was uh sarah connor from the terminator movies and you know how does how does does someone go from being a waitress to a warrior and that fascinated me i I wanted to not only show the transformation how what is she from the beginning to the end but i want to show the in-between also what happened to her and what did she have to go through to get to that place nice nice so, Jason, you blend a domestic thriller with a little bit of a police procedural in this book. Did you set out to do that um, genre blending or did it just come to you naturally? You know, I, I never saw it as a police procedural, even though there is a there are two uh, police detectives who are essentially the, the secondary main characters in the book and there is a main investigation. I did see it, I don't know if I could say domestic suspense, only because, you know, it's not, you know, there's... It's not someone investigating, like, is my husband or wife cheating on me or something like that. That's not the main thrust of it. But I saw it more, I guess, as suspense than sort of 
police procedural. I, you know, I, I look at police procedural and I see someone like uh, like Michael Connolly or Ed McBain. Um, I almost, I sort of wouldn't even deign to, you know, set foot in their territory because I think they know it better than I do. But I did, to me, the most important part of this book was family. Um, Rachel protecting her family, protecting her secrets, which uh, kind of reverberate onto her family. And then essentially kind of coming across these two cops and they're doing their own investigation. Rachel decides to do her own one because she has a very justifiable reason not to trust the police. If you read the book, you'll understand why. But I also wanted to be, you know, even though we sort of root for Rachel because she's been through this terrible trauma and she wants to find justice for, for this uh, for this woman who died, the cops have every right to be very, very skeptical of her. I mean, here's this woman who's not in law enforcement, has no law enforcement background whatsoever, essentially butting into a police investigation. So I feel like sometimes a lot of a lot of books, the cops, you know, they're seen as sort of the bad guys, the obstacles. Like they're, you know, they're essentially just obstacles for the main character. I did want the cops in this book to feel a little more real, a little more three-dimensional, so that we could understand them when they when they're getting frustrated at Rachel for butting in, we can say, you know what, in the in the same circumstance, we could understand where they're coming from. Yeah, in my experience, police don't uh, tend to appreciate it when you sort of stick your nose into a homicide investigation. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and I do think like just because they're the, you know, they're law enforcement, they're the authority figures, people tend to look at cops and a lot, a lot of times, uh, if they're not the protagonist, they tend to look at cops as sort of like the, the uh, not the villains, but just more as obstacles. But in this book, I really wanted you to, to get to know the cops, know that they meant well, they had, they were good people. And here's this, you know, from their perspective, here's this crazy woman butting into all this stuff. And they have every right to ask her to back the hell off. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, in addition to all your writing, you have somehow found the time to run your own publishing imprint with Polis Books. Now, was being a publisher ever on your radar when you started writing? Um, I started writing before I got into publishing. I mean, I, I was, you know, writing terrible short stories when I was a kid. They're always you know, carbon copy ripoffs or whatever I was reading at the time. You know, I, I grew up on uh, epic fantasy. So I was, I grew up on Terry Brooks and Piers, uh, Piers Anthony and Brian Jacques. So, you know, I was right like, oh, here's a, here's a fantasy tale about a uh, little, little people looking after going for jewelry because Lord knows that's never been done. Um, <laughs> uh, but then I sort of fell into publishing by accident uh, where I wanted to be a writer, had no, didn't knew nobody in the industry, didn't know a damn thing about it. Um, ended up taking a internship at a literary agency to learn more about the industry. Uh, I happened to uh, then end up work getting a job as an editorial assistant at Warner Books uh, just because I fell in love with the editorial process, but I was still writing during all that time. As far as being a publisher, um, I don't think I ever really wanted to be a publisher or at least an independent publisher until I want to say maybe seven or eight years ago. Um, I want to say this is going to sound horribly conceited, but I was never a big fan of paying your dues. I always felt like if someone was good at something, they should be allowed to do it. Like, you know, if you're if your assistant's good, a good editor and can acquire books, let them do that. But I felt like, you know, if I'd stayed there another 10 years, I would have ended up in middle management and then I would have gotten fired like everyone else in the industry who's gotten fired at some point. Um, <laughs> so in the end, I wanted to do my own thing. I wanted to publish what I wanted to publish how it was published, how it was designed, how it was marketed. I felt like I had a good background in all of those. I'd worked in editorial, I'd worked in marketing. And as a writer, I could sort of empathize with my own writers. Um, you know, I had to learn a lot about the operations side. But, um, you know, it's there is a, a certain, yeah, there's a certain level of conceit there thinking that I, I could do this. So, you know, it definitely took a little time to get all the trains running. But 
Um, you know, I love it. We've been up, we've been in business for about seven years now. And I always wanted to sort of balance both the writing and publishing side, but I definitely had to take time off of writing to take a couple years to start Polis. Um, but I'm, I'm very happy to sort of be back on track doing both. So you were born in New York and you're currently mm-hmm. living in New Jersey. So yes. why set this outside Chicago? Uh, I wanted to set it in sort of a, a small Midwestern town where somebody could get lost. The, you know, because after, uh, after Rachel's life is basically torn apart, you know, there's even a part in the book where she's sort of, you can see when she's debating where to move because she can't stay, she can't stay where she lives currently because of everything that's happened. Uh, and she wants to go somewhere that where she, it's a small enough town that she can disappear, not in the middle of nowhere to the point where she can still essentially lead a life and the kids can get schooled, but also close enough to transportation that if God forbid something happens, she can you know, get the hell out of there. And I also sort of didn't want to be, I didn't want people to go into it thinking, oh, this is Chicago. Oh, this is, uh, you know, Des Moines. Um, that was sort of why I invented the town of Ashby because I wanted to create my own geography. I wanted to sort of create a, create a town and it sort of invent a bit of a backstory. I feel like if I'd set it in a real locale, people would have gone into it with their own preconceived notions of what this town is and why Rachel moved there. Um, so I sort of saw it as my uh, as my dairy, you know, uh, the the town that Stephen King, uh, you know, Stephen King and Castle Rock, the, the famous town that Stephen King invented, where I could have Rachel come here. But then in this book and in the subsequent books, and hopefully further on, we can explore the history of the town too and learn more about the sort of all the skeletons in, in the closet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I like doing that where people aren't bringing their own preconceived notions or exactly. or their own roadmaps, you know, where people are really quick to tell you, no, that was, that was a one-way street. Oh yeah. The, the yeah. first book, I, the first book I wrote, The Mark, um, it's essentially a, it's essentially a, a long chase novel, but there's a scene where the characters uh, drive to St. Louis. And I've got like half a dozen emails from people saying like, that's the, I wouldn't have taken that highway. I would have taken this route. I would have gone another. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So I just, I didn't want to have people tell me they're like, oh, why didn't you use Google Maps or Waze? Like, so yeah, if I invent the city, I don't have to deal with that. Right. <laughs> when you work on a series, you spend a lot of time with Rachel. Does your real life wife get mad about how much time you're spending with this fictional woman? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, we you know, we, we have fights about it. I'll be sitting at my desk drinking a glass of wine and just kind of like mumbling at the computer. And she'll be like, who are you talking to? And I'll say Rachel. And she'll be like, stop talking to Rachel. I'm here. Um <laughs> Um, you know, it, I, I would say, uh, we, we have our hands full. We, we have two toddlers at home. We have, uh, our, our oldest daughter will be three in June and then we have a, uh, a 16 month old. So I would say we both sort of have our hands full. So I think, I think she knows that every waking moment I have is either spent, uh, uh, on the company, on the kids or, or on my books. So I, I don't think she realistically <laughs> thinks I even have time to, to screw around with, with fictional characters. <laughs> It is the contract that all spouses sign when they marry a writer. I'm like, I'm like, it's funny because I always say like, you know, if there's ever a conference or something, I'm like, you know, honey, I might be out late tonight and then I'm home by nine. So. (laughs) (laughs) See, parenting has changed you in more ways than just the protective side. When we, when we were dating, uh, I think it was, I think it was a thriller fest one year. I was like, you know, there's a thriller fest banquet and then an after party. It could be a late one. She's like, and she, I think she had a friend's birthday party. Thing I texted her and she's like, "Oh, I'm still out. You go, but you go home and go to sleep." <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I've I've learned not to say I'll be out late because then I'm usually home at like you know at an embarrassing hour. <laughs> so Erica, parenting seems to affect your writing in many ways. It can inspire you to write a kick-ass vigilante, or you know, just to be home at a more reasonable hour. Sure, sounds like it. 
<laughs> You're not impressed with Jason's social skills, are you? <laughs> I mean, I don't want to. I want to disparage. Yeah, you're like lightweight. (laughs) But I don't have kids either, so I I got I got no food to stand on with that. Oh, you got all the time in the world to stay out late drinking. That's right. I've I've been with you at conferences. I know how it goes. (laughs) Yeah, I'm usually the one closing down that bar. Uh huh. (laughs) Well, our next guest is Andrew Maine, and his latest novel is The Girl Beneath the Sea. Now, Andrew is also an accomplished magician. Yeah, this does us no good at all since listeners can't see him. No. Yeah, he could be doing brilliant tricks the whole time and nobody would ever know. He would not. Well, let's see what he has to say anyway. Here's Andrew Maine. Andrew Maine, in your uh, new novel, The Girl Beneath the Sea, Sloane McPherson is a police diver. Uh, so this is a real job? Actually, yeah, you have in you know many places where you have a large bodies of water. You often have criminal investigations and things involving water, and you need people to go in there and retrieve things. Sometimes departments have specialized people who do just that. Sometimes it's somebody who maybe that's an added skill that they're capable of doing. And is this something that you were well aware of beforehand? Are are, are you a diver? Is this something that like, when you discovered this job, you said, "Ooh, that would make a good character for a novel." Yeah, I grew up in South Florida scuba diving, and then my brother was in law enforcement, and he's actually an FBI agent now, but before he was at the Florida Marine Unit, or part of the division of the Fort Lauderdale Police Department, and he's also done diving for like FBI and stuff. And then my father was a federal agent, and they would use divers periodically to go do recoveries. Sometimes they would use people who work with police departments. Sometimes they would use freelancers. Andrew, you... um. You obviously do a lot of diving. Um, do you take the sort of chances that Sloan does underwater, or do you play it safe? Oh, gosh, no. Uh, I try to be extremely safe, with the exception of swimming with great white sharks for like my Discovery Channel special, which I did you know, last year. But normally, no. I'm a, I'm a very cautious diver. I try to take you know every precaution I can. But you know, that's one of the things I wanted to show them in the book, was that people who do this a lot, they tend to have their limits for what they figure is acceptable, is probably different than what we should be doing or what we're used to when we go through, let's say, regular scuba training. Yeah, Sloan, uh, is, she, she's going to take uh, some extra chances that your average uh, just pleasure diver is not going to take because she's uh, she's on the job and she's trying to find the truth. Yeah, she grew up in a, you know, a family of people who spent all their time around in the water. And you know, an example is that, let's say, if you're recreationally diving, you might use sort of like the paddy dive tables. But if you're somebody who's a more experienced diver, you might use the naval dive tables which you know, just explains how much longer you could be underwater or whatnot. And so there is sort of this differences of approaches that people can take. But And that's the danger for divers is that like your people who do it all the time is you start to get comfortable. You start to get away with things. You get away with things because, you know, the risk is different and you think, okay, I can do this. But then you find out about some tragedy happening to somebody so experienced. It's often because they did push it too much. So you are an accomplished magician. You are also a podcast host, so you're familiar with this whole process. You've had your own TV specials. So I'm going to assume from all these these things that you are very good at being disciplined to make the time to write, which is, I think, one of the key things in becoming a writer is just having the discipline to sit down and do it, right? Yeah, I had to kind of figure out 
what was going to be my approach because I like to do different stuff. And, you know, I'd read a lot of writing advice where people talked about, you know, find your favorite chair, find your favorite, you know, sweater and your cup of tea and all that. And I have this sort of theory that like, if you're too particular about how you have to get something done, you won't get it done very often. And I knew that if I wanted to go, go off and go train for, let's say do rebreather training to go swim in Australia with sharks. And I had a book deadline coming up. I didn't know if I was going to be sitting in my nice little office to write, or if I was going to be sitting on an airplane or airport somewhere. So I just got myself very used to be able to write in any environment. And I'm an easily distracted person. For me to say that I taught myself how to do this, you're talking about a, a guy who's always distracted by everything else around me. But, you know, I just had to learn how to do that. And so, you know, I can, you know, write waiting in line somewhere. I've had to write noisy casinos on my iPhone, but oh, wow. it was just a thing oh, wow. that I tried to develop. Well, that's impressive. Erica, are you uh, are you a write anywhere kind of person or do you need your uh, your sweater and your cup of tea? Um, <laughs> it's more like a cup of coffee. Um, <laughs> I can write at home, but I can also write in coffee shops. I can write where it's where it's busy and loud. Um, I've never tried to write in line somewhere, though. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, but you could. And, and that's the thing is I think that, you know, you you just, you know, explain how you can kind of switch environments. And we have our ideal like I have my ideal environment that I like, but. I think that a lot of times we put these sort of blocks in front of ourselves and say, oh, it's, you know, we can be a little superstitious. And once, as you guys know, once you're in the flow, once it's there, you know, the house can be burning around you and you want to keep writing. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, Andrew, you've also written some advice books for writers, including how to get over writer's block. Can you share any quick tips for struggling writers who are listening? Yeah. And first, I write these from the points of view of somebody who's still figuring stuff out. Like, I don't want to come across as like, well, everybody, let me share my wisdom. I'm I'm a person <laughs> always asking questions about the process, always trying to figure out, you know, what works, what doesn't. And so, you know, you hear the concept writer's block mentioned, and I never experienced what some people described as writer's block. But then you talk to people and you, under, you find out that there's kind of different forms of it. And sometimes there's that just stare at the blank page going, I don't know what to do. There can be, I don't know what to do next, or there can be, uh, I don't know how to work myself out of this situation, or, you know, I'm bored with this. And one of the things that's helpful to me is when I sit down to write, let's say a novel, I write a mission statement. What is this going to be about? What is the arc going to be for the character? What are the themes that I'm going to try to address? And, and what things do I want to have happen? And I put that in a little mission statement. So anytime I'm writing my book and I feel a little bit of drag, I look at that and I go, am I, am I in alignment with what I'm trying to do here? Is this really serving what this book is supposed to be about? Or did I just follow some tangent that I thought would be curious and fun, but really doesn't serve that? Well, that's, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think uh, it, being able to ha kind of have that, that touchstone that you can always go back to, that's, that's a, a good piece of advice for people. Yeah, it really is. I didn't do that. <laughs> yeah, what's helpful for me too is that, you know, and I, maybe this is true for you guys, when you get to the end of a book and you're like, you put all that effort in and, you know, if you followed your outline and you did everything you think you're supposed to, that mission statement's good too, because we're often going, ah, did I, is this it? Like, like I, I think I did it. I guess so. And I don't know. Is it good? I don't know. Because we're so, every mystery has been revealed to us. We've gone over everything a thousand times. It's hard for us to tell if it's any good. But I found that if I have a mission statement and a really good outline, whatever doubt I may have is irrelevant because usually the book ends up being pretty well received. Now, I uh, may be giving myself a little too much credit here because I know nothing of magic. I can't even I can't even make a quarter appear out of my daughter's ear. 
But I do see a lot of parallels between being a writer and a magician in the fact that the audience sort of goes in knowing the basic premise of each of these things is a bit of an illusion. I mean, is there a natural fit for a magician turning novelist? Magic at its best is really good storytelling. And it's a presentation of a conflict and that it's a revelation that hopefully is a bit surprising. Magic at its worst is just watch me do something really cool. Aren't I awesome? And, you know, my better magic is where <laughs> I get somebody engaged in a mystery, like, you know, somebody picks a card, but it looks like I screwed up or circumstances or something was done that took it out of my control. Like there is no way I could find this card now. And then for some reason I find it, you know, but really good magic is creating some meaning towards that. You know, why, why should we care if this happens? And so storytelling is the same thing. You know, bad storytelling tends to be too linear. You know, it ends exactly where we think it's going to begin. Mm -hmm. So I think about that a lot. Like, how do I set up expectations to the audience? How do I deliver it in a way that surprises them yet still makes sense? That's interesting. I think a lot of people do kind of ignore or at least not realize the storytelling aspect of a good magic act. One of the best, I think probably one of the best magicians ever, and certainly one of the best magicians today is Teller of Penn and Teller. And what's amazing about Teller is that if you watch Teller do his solo pieces, Teller performs silent, and yet he does conflict, he does character, he does all these things. And I think that that's extremely helpful, one, I tell magicians, but also writers, is look at like we're watching somebody trying to solve a problem. You know, there's a beginning, middle, and end there. And that's such a helpful thing, I think, for me to always keep in mind is why are we here? What are we doing in this moment in the story? Andrew, you hosted a TV show called Andrew Maine Can't Be Trusted. Yeah, don't trust Andrew Maine, yeah. yeah. Will we trust anything you said here today? I wouldn't. I wouldn't. <laughs> Our final guest this week is Marsha Clark. She was one of the most high-profile lawyers in Los Angeles not too long ago. But now Marsha is a best-selling author of legal thrillers, including her series starring Samantha Brinkman. And the latest of those is Final Judgment. So, Erica, have you uh, ever had to make a phone call to a lawyer? Huh? Ever been arrested? <laughs> I have. Let me knock on wood for a moment. I have not had to make a phone call to a lawyer, although I've interacted with quite a lot of them. So, okay, so you've had consultations with lawyers, but you've never engaged one with you as a client. Exactly. Never, never for myself. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, Marsha, Samantha Brinkman is back in Final Judgment, and uh, final is kind of a telling word in the title because this is her last adventure, is it not? Yeah, unfortunately, it is, and I'm sorry. I've had people <laughs> say, you know, why are you doing this? Why? But, you know, the characters come to a natural place in their lives where it feels right to wrap things up. It just felt that way. So that's where we got to with Samantha, and um, it was a fun book to write because I did get to wrap up one really key aspect of her life that was dogging her torturously, you know, for her entire life. And I got to do, let her get payback, which was, you know, she liked it. And so did I. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we can go on record as saying you, uh, you are a payback person. Do not get on your bad side because you, you will wait. Apparently you have patience. <laughs> But you'll get yours. Yeah, I have patience. And so you better watch out or I'll write about you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the writer's ultimate revenge. Exactly. <laughs> Marcia, Samantha has been known to bend the rules a bit to get what she wants. Now, that never happens with real lawyers, right? Of course, never. 
Actually, Samantha doesn't just bend the rules. She turns them into a pretzel and then buries them somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) She really has zero fucks to give. Oh, can I say that? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) She really, you know, this is, it's kind of the fun thing to do with a character like this who had such a tortured childhood is to play out the ways in which this person who was a victim for the first 16, 18 years of her life becomes the victor. You know, she winds up being able to wield the kind of power she wished she had when she was a kid. And and she wields it in many nefarious, but ultimately just ways, you know, to punish the guilty and to reward the innocent and, and help others. In, but, you know, the ways in which she does it are mostly illegal. <laughs> so, you know, but, but because she has no boundaries, she doesn't have those kind of limits in her thinking. She reflects in this book a little bit um, about her na- the nature of her sociopathy. And in this book in particular, she does think about the spectrum that exists. There is such mm-hmm. a thing, you know, as, as a little bit sociopathic or a lot sociopathic. And the fact that maybe being sociopathic isn't all bad. <laughs> right. Well, I, I assume that uh, in order to write a character like this uh, realistically, that maybe there's a little bit of, uh, I don't know, wish fulfillment or, or proxy uh, writing on, on your part. Is, is, does Samantha represent a part of you that maybe you, sometimes you wish you could unleash in public? Sure. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> isn't that like the point of writing is that you get yes. to, right? I mean, you have all this power to make things happen in ways that you really couldn't in real life or to look into the souls of people that you have known or that you kind of um, amplify, you know, you can, you can take liberties with reality. I mean, I think that's the fun of writing. And I think everybody would love to be able to have the power as well as the, the mindset that allows somebody like Samantha to do whatever it takes to make the right thing happen, regardless of the law, regardless of many personal consequences. Right. Wouldn't we all like yeah. to make sure yeah. that the evildoers get their due? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, now you've moved from the courtroom yourself now to entertaining people with books, uh, with your, your many TV appearances, uh, you know, promotions like this. I mean, do you think was being in the courtroom good practice for everything that you have to do these days? You know, I guess it was. Believe me, there was no grand plan that this would happen. <laughs> you know, I uh-huh. feel like that Buzz Lightyear character who was like, he says that, you know, flying is really just a series of falling, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and I just kind of fell into one thing after another. So, I mean, I was a defense attorney to begin with criminal defense. And then I was a prosecutor. And when I left the DA's office, then it was just kind of, Oh, this looks like fun. Oh, I'll do, Oh, I'll do that. Oh, I'll do that. And so, yeah, a lot of the things that you do as a criminal trial lawyer, especially a trial lawyer, does prepare you for this kind of thing. It, it gives you, A, it gives you a lot of stories to tell. B, it makes you more comfortable in front of people when you have to speak in front of people. C, I think it also does promote imagination because you have to, you have to think um, on your feet quickly in trial, but you also have to think strategically in terms of how you tell a story to the jury. Now, you can't, you don't have the power in a courtroom to control the narrative as well because you have a judge who's getting in your way. You have a defense attorney who gets in your way. And so, you know, that that definitely does kind of put a kink in things when you try to schedule 
your witnesses and you try to tell the story so that you end on a, on an intriguing high note every day and then on a particularly high note every Friday afternoon so the jurors will go home thinking about what you just last said. Yeah, it's like you're you're making little chapter breaks uh, right. at the end of each trial day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, that's 100%. You've written about DA Rachel Knight and now attorney Samantha Brinkman. Do you think you'll ever write from the criminal's point of view? I do. I am. In this in my the book that I'm writing working on now, it's a standalone and it's written from the perspective of three points of view. One of those points of view is the criminal, is the murderer. Nice. Or is it? Okay. Uh-huh. Oh. <laughs> Because I think, um, I I mean, that's a really good question, and it's a really interesting idea. And that's why I wanted to write from these three perspectives, because I wanted to, for a change, write from that point of view, because I think it'd be really fun. And most likely in my book after this one, I might not do three points of view, because let me tell you something, that is so much harder than you think it's going to (laughs) be. I mean, guys, I mean, it's, it's a mystery within a mystery and told from three points of view. And halfway through my first draft, I'm like, why the hell did I want to do this? What is wrong with me? <laughs> Banging my head on the wall. It's like, why is, why, why? But anyway, this is how we learn. Exactly. Probably the next book, I will do a single point of view, but uh, that single point of view from a um, a criminal's point, uh, I think is really fascinating. It, we as a culture seem to be fascinated by lawyers and lawyer stories you know, it comes down to right and wrong, innocent and guilt. I think that's a very basic thing. But I always feel like we can't seem to decide if lawyers are heroes or villains. And they seem to be portrayed in kind of equal amounts. Obviously, I feel like you probably come down on the hero side of things. Yeah. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much. I think they're both, you know, they're both. We see that, you know, in daily life. I mean, first of all, lawyers, especially in criminal law, are interesting because they deal with life and death. You know, I mean, it doesn't get much more dramatic than that. So in that sense, lawyers, courtrooms, courtroom dramas, these are inherently dramatic. You don't have to add a whole bunch of ingredients to make it um, exciting. I mean, I think that's always been fascinating. But look, I mean, look, when was Perry Mason first out? And even before that, this has been an, an enduring genre, I think, for decades, if not longer, and probably will remain so because because of the inherently dramatic nature of what they deal with. Yeah. yeah. Now, legal thrillers always seem to have an easier time than other books and in pre- titles since there's so many great legal terms out there. I mean, do you just have an endless supply of legalese that you're going to be able to use for book titles? Uh, you know, I guess we're, well, we're, we're told to do that. If I, if I were left to my own devices, I probably wouldn't. And then actually, the next book, the one I'm right, working on right now, yeah. is not a legal title. So we'll see... We'll see how that does. We'll see what happens with that. I think it's probably a good way, though, to flag your yeah. book to readers as letting them know this, this is the genre I'm writing in so they know what they're getting. Yeah. yeah. The way those political thrillers always have a picture of the Capitol building or the White yeah. House on the cover. <laughs> exactly. And someone running. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. The, the woman in the red coat running away from the yeah. lens. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, we have these tropes that we use and that's cool. You know, I mean, I think that in this crowded market, it's so readers, all of us who consume, you know, whether it's books, television, film, we're so inundated. There's so much out there to see that you really do need to grab people's attention as quickly as you can. And that's one way, you know, the book cover is one really great way that they found to do it. 
So that plus title, it's the image plus the title. They're always, when it comes to my books anyway, they've always wanted to have some kind of legal um, graphic on the cover, regardless of what the title was. Because in, in a way, I'm thinking Snap Judgment isn't necessarily, which is another Samantha book, isn't necessarily a legal term, but but certainly the um, the look of the cover is. Oh, yeah. Well, we're always at the mercy of uh, the, the marketing division of uh, of the publishers, right? <laughs> oh, 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 a hundred percent, a hundred percent. You can you can have all these great visions of what you're going to do, whether it's graphic or whether it's your title. But um, if the publisher says no, it's no. <laughs> Well, Erica, you have been an outstanding co-host, and I cannot thank you enough. Thank you, Eric. I super appreciate you having me on. Well, congratulations on the new book, and I hope this is the start of a long-running series for you. Thank you. I do, too. I'm very excited. Well, you've already finished book two? Yeah. Book two is turned in, and I have a pretty solid draft of book three. Well, can you give us a little uh, teaser of where else in the wide world these books are going to go? I sure can. Book two is um, an English manor house mystery. Same character. Mm-hmm. And then book three is set on a transatlantic cruise. Oh. I know. Oh, I love a book on a train or a boat. I know. It's fun, right? Oh, Have, have you seen the show High Seas on Netflix? Oh, no. I had set that aside because I did not want it to influence, influence me for a while I was writing book three. Ah, right. probably smart. Yeah. Well, when, when you get to it, it's really good. That's what I've heard. Well, you can always find me on Twitter at WriterTypes, and the show page with archives of every episode is at WriterTypesPodcast.com. I hope you've been enjoying the extra episodes that I've been doing for quarantine. I'll have a new one again next week. That's a good one. Uh, after that, I may be slowing down a little bit. I, I do have a book due that I kind of need to get cracking on. We, we still do that, right, Erica? Still still write books, even though the world is burning. So I'm told. Well, thanks again, Erica, for joining me. And I hope to see you again in person one day when you know we're allowed to do that. Yes, absolutely. Excellent. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.